Dear listeners, I'm Lauren Conlon, and before you embark on this investigative journey with me, I want to offer a sincere word of my acknowledgement and gratitude. When I, as the host, first set out on this path, I was admittedly very green. I lacked the seasoned expertise and finesse that comes with experience in investigative podcasting and reporting. However, Every story has a beginning and an ending, and this podcast represents the start of my own investigative odyssey. So as you dive into these episodes, you may notice rough edges or moments where my inexperience shines through, but please know that every stumble and misstep has been a crucial part of my learning process, and I've embraced each challenge as an opportunity for growth and improvement. So I want to express my heartfelt appreciation to each and every one of you who was stuck with the story despite my imperfections because Grant's story is important. So your support and patience have been invaluable as I've navigated the complexities of investigative podcasting and your feedback, whether constructive criticism, words of encouragement, or maybe something that wasn't so nice has helped me and helped shape this podcast into what it is today. So without further ado, here is Corruption, What Happened to Grant Solomon. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Corruption. What happened to Grant Solomon? I hope everyone is having a great week so far. Today, I have a really interesting guest that I've interviewed, and her name is Dr. Joni Johnston. She's a clinical forensic psychologist and licensed private investigator. But before we get into that, I have been doing some thinking about back when Angie and Aaron Solomon had been in court for 10 years plus, and the whole reason that Angie lost her children because she was accused by her ex-husband of being mentally ill and having suicidal ideations or suicide attempts. 
And, you know, the court aired on the side of Aaron Solomon. So um, Angie was deemed crazy. And if you remember a report that I read a few episodes back, it was the testimony of a law enforcement officer who was called to the Solomon household on a domestic issue. He recalled Aaron Solomon coming outside and explaining to them that his wife was mentally ill and having an episode. And essentially this guy ended up saying, well, he could tell that Aaron was the aggressor. But I just want to reiterate that this has been the basis of Aaron's defense for the last 10 years plus. So there are a few interesting points that I want to make about this. So number one, despite the court siding with Aaron and taking the kids away from Angie because she's quote unquote crazy, Angie was and is a doctor of pharmacy. And not once during this time was she sanctioned. Did she have to go in front of the medical board, state her case? Never did she get her license revoked. So she's crazy, take her kids, but she still has to pay for them. And even though she's crazy, she still gets to work as a pharmacist and fill people's prescriptions. But no, she can't see her kids, too crazy but not crazy enough to work with actual drugs. Do you guys get what I'm getting at here? It just, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And, you know, it's public on the Tennessee Department of Health under practitioner profile. You can see Angie's information and yeah, she still has her license. It's all there. And my second point, I don't see anywhere in the court records or court documents, and and there's a possibility, I don't have them, but Someone can't just be mentally ill as a blanket statement or crazy. Don't they need a specific diagnosis like schizophrenia, for example? I mean, from what I've read, he always seemed to say she's crazy, she's mentally ill. Or maybe her alleging suicide is supposed to be the diagnosis, so treat that. But either way, When he said that, that she was suicidal and she was crazy, what seemed to happen was she was ostracized and her kids were taken away. And there are so many things wrong with that. And then my last point, a few months ago, I came across a message from a woman who went on a date with Aaron Solomon, and she mentioned that he told her his ex-wife was suicidal. And then another woman echoed that she was also told by him that his ex-wife was suicidal. And I guess I'm wondering if this can be considered yet another inconsistency. I'm sure one could argue, oh, suicidal does mean crazy. Well, it actually doesn't. It, It means depressed and you need help. But to me, this was just another slight red flag that that his story does seem to change and it seems to change often. And you may think differently and that's fine, but I did want to put all of this out there just as food for thought. So anyway, let's get to today's guest, Dr. Joni Johnston, a quick little bio on her. Dr. Joni Johnston is a clinical forensic psychologist and a licensed private investigator. With over 30 years of clinical and forensic experience as a therapist and evaluator, she brings a diversity of professional experience to evaluating crime scene behavior and understanding the criminal mind. She began her career working with sex offenders, sex offender victims, and their families. She's conducted over 200 independent sexual harassment investigations 
investigations and has worked with numerous companies and universities in evaluating and assessing employee conduct problems and workplace threats. So I'm going to jump right into my interview with Joni, and I think you guys are going to find her so fascinating. Okay, everyone. I'm sitting here with the fabulous Dr. Joni Johnston. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Johnston. I'm happy to be here, Lauren. Thanks for the invitation. Of course, of course. And can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself in your own words? I've, I've given them a bit of a rundown, but please, in your own words. I'm a forensic psychologist primarily. I also am a licensed private investigator, and I spend a lot of time um, in prisons, in courts, working with the probation um, offices, with parole, um, and basically doing risk assessment, mental health assessments, and doing a lot of review of witness statements and those kinds of things. So I have like the best job in the world. Wow. Wow. That's, <laughs> I mean, that's very intense. My goodness. Um, so something that you brought up offline that I think is is really important to note here for everyone listening is that I am very vocal about being editorial. I give my opinion throughout, you know, the podcast. I, I do a bit of storytelling, but a lot of this is my opinion. Um, you, on the other hand, your job is to essentially not give opinions and be a hundred percent objective. Can you uh, elaborate on that further? Well, I think when there's been some you know, either a crime or a possible crime, it's very um, possible. It's, it's actually almost impossible not to, for that event, not to cloud everything else. Mm-hmm. So we look and we kind of go, okay, this happened. Um, and then everything else can look suspicious. Or we start attributing everything that happens after that or around the time to the crime or the personality of the person. Mm-hmm. And so I am sometimes asked to give opinions about risk assessment or about mental health issues. But my job is also a lot of times to kind of say, okay, and, unless I have a baseline of mm-hmm. somebody's behavior beforehand, unless I have a lot of information about that person's history, um, it's very difficult to sort out, okay, am I seeing this because of we know the ending of the story? Right. Um, or is it that this definitely fits with this person's life throughout their throughout their lives? And that I think is something that's really important for me to do, that I'm not in a position where even though I might kind of go, okay, you know, it looks very suspicious to me. It looks like something happened. I want to always step back and kind of go, okay, is it the person? Is it the personality or is it the situation and help sort that out? Yes. And and I find that very interesting because something that I've brought up before is that I feel like the entire picture was not looked at after the accident. Um, Something I've said a few times is why is it so separate? I guess. The Gallatin PD arrived on scene. They didn't treat it like an investigation or a crime scene. It was, they took Aaron Solomon's word for it. Fine. It was an accident. Uh, But then you go back and you dive into this case and you see that there is a history of, uh, or a tumultuous history, I should say, between father and son. They didn't do anything alone. Uh, You know, they, they were seen playing baseball or throwing the ball around, but that was at, at, you know, in a public area, they went to dinner, there was other people there, but they, they really hadn't been alone in two years. And you've got the, the history of, of verbal abuse that was documented in the court. And so it's just, it was really strange to me that none of this had tied together. And I don't know if that's normal or something you see a lot, but that in itself would be a reason to treat it like an investigation, in my opinion. 
you know, I, I have to agree with you. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I have many, many law enforcement friends. And one of the things yeah. I hear often is, you know, every unexpected death should be considered a crime or potential homicide unless proven otherwise. And in theory, I think we would all agree to that, that that's how it should be treated. In reality, is that how it often works? Not necessarily. And I think when you have somebody who is initially perceived as a grieving parent, it is very difficult sometimes for law enforcement to step back and kind of go, wait a minute, you know, we don't really know what happened here. All we're, we need to see, we need to evaluate everything. We need to take this person away from the incident or, or the, the scene. We need to interview this person. We need to collect evidence. We need to call a crime scene person. These are things we need to do in, for every unexpected death. Um, so is it normal that that would not be done? No, I don't think it is. I think that's unusual. And I think, you know, just from what we've seen, I had a million questions from from <laughs> yeah. the things that I read, as I know you have, and, and I think a lot of people do have. And I think some of those questions could and probably should have been answered at the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm glad to hear you say that without really knowing every single detail. Uh, but you, you said it, an unexpected death should be treated like a crime scene. And I guess I couldn't figure out if, because they were 50 miles from where the Solomons lived in Franklin and where, you know, they had most of their court cases and most of their issues. I thought to myself, okay, well, maybe that's why they didn't, they didn't know. But I mean, it takes two seconds to, to look into to somebody to, especially if you're a, you're a cop, I would assume, or, or in that field to just look at their background and see there've been calls of, of domestic violence at their house. There's been, you know, it's just like, it really, really bothered me a lot. Um, but yeah. Well, and I think, you know, it's interesting because you know we can do a lot of analyzing of why things didn't happen, but I will tell you that oftentimes, you know, and I, I've talked to many police officers who would agree with this, mm. that oftentimes if there isn't a lot of care taken, the way a, a call is received, in other words, if it's received as a suicide, Somebody calls 911 and reports, oh my, oh my God, my husband just committed suicide. Mm. That can unwittingly taint what happens after that. So the 911 call person is, is receiving it as a suicide. They're talking to police. They might say there's a suicide at 29 Oak Street. They go out. They're expecting to see a suicide. And so they kind of see the scene that way. That, that's what they're okay. looking for, suicide. Okay. Now, yeah. what if the, what if the person who is calling is, a, a murderer who has mm-hmm. staged this scene as a suicide. So unless, you know, unless you have people who are working together to say, okay, yeah. this is how it's reported. I mean, I think it should always be reported as an unexpected death, but this was reported as an accident from the right. very, very beginning. So they go out and they're expecting to see an accident. They see a father. So initially I wouldn't expect them to say, okay, let me delve into their past and their history and that kind of thing. You don't have to do that. Right. To do some of the basics in terms of mm-hmm. gathering information, you know, taking photographs, collecting what you find at the scene, again, you know, dusting for whatever you need to do. Sure. I'm not a crime scene investigator, so I'm not going to go down that, that rabbit hole. <laughs> but I do know that there are a lot of things that take typically a lot longer than 57 minutes or, or however long they were there um, to gather all that information. So I think, you know, it's possible that at that scene, 
if errors were made or if information was not gathered that should have been gathered. Mm. Um, it isn't necessarily, I think, for nefarious reasons, right? It isn't necessarily that there's something terrible going on or something, some cover up is happening. Um, but it doesn't mean those things should not have been done. Right. Um, and in your experience, I mean, an accident is an accident and you've got to, you know, if there's two cars, I think that's easier, you know, to, to get the description of what happened. But since this was a single car accident and the person that was involved in it is no longer with us in your experience, wouldn't there be an accident reconstruction done just because it's, it was a, I don't want to say he he was a child, but you know, he was an 18 year old kid, so to speak. Technically that's not a minor anymore, but wouldn't, wouldn't you think an accident recon should have been done just to really understand what ha- what happened that took this young man's life abruptly? Well, so I don't know that I can speak to the crime scene reconstruction piece of it. I can't okay. speak though, having as somebody who's read a lot of you know, crime scene investigations or, or, mm. or that when you look at witness statements, you look at the things that the police officers did, I would certainly have expected more things to be done. Right. Because at that point, you don't know what you have, really. You don't, if, if for no other reason, you're trying to figure out how in the world, you know, a young man could have been dragged 60 feet with, you know, by, by a car. So there's so many questions there that would call for a, a more thorough investigation to be done. Would a crime scene reconstruction be part of that? Possibly, for sure. But you would certainly yeah. expect there'd be a lot more questions and a lot more, um, and also just some corroboration. You know, yeah. if, for example, somebody is saying, I was on my phone at the time this happened, I was texting. Mm-hmm. Um, I would expect if I am following this kind of training, which says, again, you know, unless it's, you know, uh, that an unexpected death should be considered a crime scene that's proven otherwise, I would want to know, okay, is there electronic evidence to support that this person was texting or calling people? Those are things I think that are no-brainers, no matter what you think happened. I agree. And and that came up. They did not do any type of forensics to his cell phone to check to see if he was checking emails or if he was texting. And I think something that you said, I mean, I always think about this, about the being dragged 60 feet. How, how, exactly is he attached to the bottom of this car where it dragged him but then it, when the car was on top of him he he was trapped so to speak but not under a tire not under he was just underneath the car um and and you obviously know that there was no burn marks on his body his body was in in perfect condition besides uh, a head injury a cheek scratch and something on his thigh that was said to be done a few weeks prior so I just feel like I would have so many questions dragged mm-hmm. under a car. How? You know what I'm saying? I, I do. And yeah. again, you know, one of the responsibilities I think of, of responding officers or investigating officers is to interview people that are at mm-hmm. the scene and get their information about what happened and then to try to match it with the evidence. You need to be able to explain from the evidence, it should match what this person is saying. And if, if, for example, that, you know, if, if Grant's body is not yeah. matching, um, and I hate, I hate to even say it that way, but if Grant, yeah. his, his physical appearance yeah, is right, not though. matching, you know, mm-hmm. what the story is that again calls for more investigation. Why, why isn't 
what we're being told that this person, this young man was dragged 60 feet, what we would expect given the surface of the road, the amount of time he was dragged, where he landed, uh, how did he get trapped into the car? I mean, all that, you th- that just raises more questions that then begs for more investigation. I agree 100%. And something that we brought up a lot is the three men that were uh, supposedly in the ditch with Grant during that time. Um, you know, they they disappeared before the police were able to get there. Uh, one of the employees from WPI did, in fact, confirm that they were there, not to police, to a local reporter. And, you know, it's it's beyond me why the police did not. And, and this is what I have through FOIA, the police records. Um, you know, there's a possibility that we are missing some. But to the best of my knowledge, the police never ever went into detail with Aaron Solomon about who these three men were. And that is a huge question everybody has. Were they, they you know, they were said to be in construction garb by uh, the employee. Some people have a theory they were maybe illegal and they just ran because they didn't, you know, want to, yeah, get caught. Um, other people have a theory that they were in on it. They were helping. They did it. I mean, it's just, it's insane, but it's like, put it to rest already and tell us who they were. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, I think that's the, that's the point that just really rings true for me is that, mm-hmm. you know, we can speculate and it's, it's impossible as human beings not to speculate on what that might mean, but we should be able to find out what that meant mm-hmm. as opposed to having to speculate. Were they illegal? Were they, again, were they in on it? Whatever, that, whatever the reason is, if right. there were three men at the scene, they should be talked to because they were witnesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, and they never were. So just quickly, um, I know that you did, you had a, an opportunity to listen to the 911 call. And I know that you've never, um, you've never sat down with Aaron Solomon. You've never treated him, but off the top of your head, what were your initial thoughts about this? You know, it's always so difficult. Um, there've been a lot, there's been some attempt, believe it or not, to do research on 911 calls, like genuine versus fake 911 calls. Wow. And there's okay. a lot of controversy about that because it is true. And I think most reporters, and I think you probably would agree, will say that, again, people respond to trauma differently. They respond to emergencies differently. And it's important to keep that in mind. Um, you know, listening to the 911 tape, I guess a couple of things, ca- you know, came true to me. I, it was real. I mean, it was, first of all, let me say this. It was difficult to separate out my mom hat from my psychologist hat and listening Absolutely. to this 911 tape. It really mm-hmm. was difficult. And so I'm not sure here if I'm speaking as a psychologist, okay. you know, only totally. or as a mom, because I could not fathom that conversation as a mom in terms of my child is underneath a car. Um, I would be talking, screaming, probably from the, you know, from beside that car, hanging on as much as I could to, to my child. Now, that doesn't mean everybody responds that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say, um, and this necessarily, so the, the 911 call was very unusual to me. I have listened to many 911 calls, and that is not how, in my experience, most parents respond to a situation, not that there are that many situations like this, but to a situation when your child is potentially gravely injured or seriously injured, that is not the tone of voice that I would expect. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Necessarily. Um, I I don't know that I would expect somebody, a parent to go into as much detail about what might've happened as opposed to get here, get here, get here. What can I do? What should I be doing? Can we lift the car up? I mean, you know, all those things as a parent, your number one focus would be on my child, my child, not what happened. I don't care what happened at that point. What I care about is, it's happened and I have to save my child. So that was my response. And I don't know, I obviously wasn't, I don't think it was part of the 911 thing. I think the other thing that really struck home for me was um, at some point he said, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, Lauren, sure. um, that he had said that he had never gone down to you're, you're correct to see his son. And I cannot think of a reason for that. I cannot, I cannot think of a reason why a parent would not go down and want to be with their child or see their child or try to yeah. comfort that child in some way. Or um, I, I have no good explanation for that. Right. I, I, you are, um, you are saying what uh, most people have been saying about this. I mean, you know, I, I had a body language expert sort of decipher that call, Tanya Ryman, and she she made a point to say, you know, he really doesn't break out of his news anchor voice, if you will. Um, and something that you said that I've picked up on quite a lot with uh, with his eulogy, Grant's eulogy, um, which is recorded, it's on Instagram, it's on the Freedom for Gracie account, but the eulogy seems to really go into explanation about that day and shortly what followed about how he got Grant's belongings back from the ditch because police left them there. But somebody that just happened to know um, Aaron Solomon's co-anchor's husband grabbed them, gave them. And Aaron tells this whole elaborate story about how he found them. It just, it wasn't necessary to, to speak about that you know, during your, your son's funeral where he's 18 years old, he died unexpectedly. It's not like, even if you were, it's not, I'm not saying that if you were expecting your son to die, you'd be better, but you know what I'm saying if they had cancer or something, but still, I just, 
there is a lot of of this type of explanation. Um, and just to counter for a second, because you know, I heard this for the first time on this podcast, True Crime Garage, where they weren't very jarred with this 911 call. And I was, I was shocked. And I said, okay, well, that is truly the first time I've heard that opinion. Um, and you know, they kind of said, well, why would he choose if he was going to do it, Aaron Solomon, why would he choose to do it on a highway in a public mm-hmm. place? And you know, da da da. I mean, yeah, those are questions that I think a lot of people have people that might be skeptical about this. You know what I'm saying? But all I can say about that is it was COVID and the highway was busy, but not that busy, if that makes sense. But go ahead. I mean, again, that kind of calls for some speculation. I mean, the scenario that would come up in my head for someone, and again, I am not in any way accusing anybody personally of doing this, but when I tried to create a scenario in my head of, okay, just based on my experience and interviewing people and those kinds of things, what kind of scenario would I come up with in my head as to why this might happen at this particular location. I, I think the thing that that came up for me initially was then this may have not have been planned. This may have been two people who met, got into an argument over whatever, and the person then picked up something, hit the person over the head, and then at that point had to figure out what to do. Now, that that is the scenario that just popped in my head right. um, as right. to why that might happen that way. It's, it's interesting because you, you are the, I think you're the first person to have said this on, on the podcast as in maybe it wasn't planned. Maybe something happened, but it's other people have speculated this to me off, off the air, I guess I should say. So no, this is, this is, um, this is interesting because knowing their history, absolutely. Maybe it wasn't planned and something happened and oh my goodness. And, um, but again, something that that I briefly mentioned on this other podcast was the way they pulled into the parking lot. Um, it was very, very weird. It, they Aaron did not park like the other cars did. He was very far away. Uh, he was almost sideways kind of parked and Grant just followed suit. So that could be nothing. But to me, that always sticks out in my mind because the WPI employee looked out the window and said, that's why he noticed them in the first place because they were parked so funny. You know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? So that I was like, I don't know if it means something, but. And that's the thing, I think, you know, I mean, I did speculate that that would be a scenario where somebody might commit a murder and I've seen people and interviewed people. So just to kind of make sure that I'm covering my bases here. Yeah. uh, I don't know that that happened in this situation, but I have certainly seen other um, I, I've certainly talked to, to inmates um, who have committed murder, spur of the moment, got into an argument, you know, something happened, and then they were stuck with this is what it is, right? This wasn't necessarily planned. This is what it is. So now I've got to make the best of this horrible situation because I don't want to get caught. And And those are situations where then you do see them do a lot of different things that we would do. Of course, we would never hopefully never murder anybody. But if we're trying to, we start thinking then about, okay, what do I do with this? How do I create a scenario that is going to make the most sense in this situation? Absolutely. And in your experience in speaking with inmates that have committed heinous murders, and, and I don't know if you've experienced any inmates who committed murders against family members, but I guess I'm just, I'm wondering if, uh, 
this isn't necessarily a super public public area because it's still very quiet in the morning and technically you're you're outside you're in an empty parking lot even though you're very visible in your experience have you have you encountered anyone that has committed a crime that's in a semi public place but was able to hide it for a while well the first part of it is kind of an easy part to answer yes right because most okay. most murders happen they're not planned right people get angry they're mad you sure. know it, it's it's certainly the exception rather than the rule for somebody to commit premeditated murder. Although, of course, those of us who do a lot of speaking in true crime, it doesn't yeah. sound like that because we're right. going to be speaking about the ones that are planned or premeditated. Yeah. So the first part is is easy to answer. Um, the second part of it, yes, I, I definitely, I do a lot of, but I mentioned this earlier, I do a lot of uh, work in the area of stage suicides. And I've seen many situations where you had somebody who they got into an argument. It was a family member and, you know, there was a history of conflict and then one person killed the other person and they staged it in all different kinds of ways. They staged it as an accident. They staged it as a suicide. They staged it as all different kinds of things. So absolutely, there have been situations. It's always difficult for that person, that perpetrator, because again, they can't think through you know, an alibi, right? Yeah. They can't think through, how am I going to do this? Or I'm not going to use poison or, you know, or something that you can't detect. Right. Things happened. Right. And then it becomes, how do I, again, make a credible story out of this? And yes, I've stepped, there've been many staged crime scenes that were not premeditated. Right. Right. I guess, no. And that, I guess I could have answered that myself, obviously. I guess I was just thinking from a perspective of somebody saying, well, why would he do it out in public? Why would he pick this area? You know, which is right. Maybe he wasn't planning it. Maybe, you know, I don't. I, yeah. Um, and the flip side of it is, as you pointed out, the flip side of it is that doesn't mean that's how it happened. The flip side of it is of you're right. That is one argument right. that, that, that speaks to, okay, maybe this was a tragic accident. Maybe this is one of these kind of freak things that happen once every hundred years. And we can't explain that. So it doesn't, you know, it's important that kind of getting back to our initial discussion, it's important mm -hmm. not to try to put all the pieces to make, to force into some certain picture that just is part of the scale right? of, yes, of yes or no. Absolutely. And uh, something that, you know, we've gone back to saying is that if only the police had investigated this, there wouldn't be so many theories and there wouldn't be so much speculation. So as much as they're fighting this, it would actually help, you know, that if, if let's say, yes, nobody that we think was involved was involved or whatever. I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you go and say, yeah, go ahead, reopen it. I mean, I can prove to you, but I mean, that just hasn't been done. And it's just, it's odd, but I want to pivot really quickly for a second um, because something I brought up at the beginning of this um, podcast is the way that Angie Solomon was portrayed in the courts. And one of the reasons, or the main reason, I should say, that she lost her children, she did not have custody of her children, was that um, Aaron Solomon, her ex-husband, his story was that she's crazy. She's quote unquote crazy and she's mentally ill and she's suicidal. She's a doctor of pharmacy. Uh, she's never lost her license. She's never even gone uh, in front of the board for a review. And somehow this held up in court and she lost her kids. Uh, that blows my mind. Completely blows my mind. So she can fill prescription bottles, <laughs> handle medicine, but she can't have her kids. Yeah, that would take me, I don't know how long to read through because I will tell okay. you, I used to do okay. years and years ago. So... Years and years ago, 
I did, I did custody evaluations and okay. I can tell you nothing surprises me when it comes to custody evaluations. People who are wow. sane, you know, fairly well-adjusted individuals when their children are involved and they are fighting with their ex person yep. will do sometimes terrible things. Now, of course we're seeing the ones that are contentious and, you know, this is not the normal custody hearing or custody evaluation. Right. So if you're a custody evaluation, you're oftentimes seeing the yeah. most difficult contentious cases, but people do sometimes, I mean, I've seen false sexual abuse allegations. I've seen, I've seen, um, you know, people calling each other crazy, hiring private investigators. I mean, just things that you just kind of go, yeah, you, you kind of go, these people have lost their mind. You know, I mean, they're <laughs> right. just, they've lost, they're, they're so emotional, right. And so devastated by what's happened. So angry. So, so, so I don't know, you know, obviously what happened in this situation. Um, the fact that somebody has their license to practice pharmacy does not mean they're necessarily a fit parent, but it certainly does argue if somebody is functioning as a, as a pharmacist, you kind of right. feel like, okay, I'm not sure that they're, they're certainly don't have active symptoms. I wouldn't imagine of a mental illness um, that, you know, they're not psychotic or they wouldn't be working. Well, and I think part of the allegations were, oh, she, she stole her own medicine from her pharmacy because she was a business owner at one point that owned a pharmacy and she was acute. I mean, it just was, it was so crazy. And I also wasn't sure if, when you're accused of being mentally ill, is that just it, the blanket term seems a little weird. I mean, there was nothing like they didn't say she was schizophrenic. They didn't say, um, you know, it just it seemed weird that she was just blanketly called mentally ill. I thought you had to have some kind of diagnosis, but it just didn't make Well, sense you would certainly me. think that if somebody is called mentally ill, yeah. that means they've had an evaluation. Yeah. As part of the custody evaluation, they've been evaluated by a psychiatrist or psychologist who's mm -hmm. probably done psychological testing, who's done a ton of, you know, interviews with this person, maybe even, you know, collateral information from people that know her. And yeah. they have come to some kind of professional opinion that typically does involve a diagnosis. So I don't know, you know, again, I don't, not, not knowing this particular right. case, I've never come across you know, as a custody evaluator, I've been asked to evaluate individuals as part of kind of a fitness for parenting. Yeah. Um, I've never, certainly never written a report that said, you know, Joni cannot, you know, I, I don't recommend that Joni have custody of her kids because she's mentally ill. I mean, that doesn't, yeah. I, I it mean, doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> right. Because you're right. going to go, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, like and I guess what my, what I said they could argue is that they would slide in, oh, she's mentally ill. She, she wants to commit suicide. Well, that's not mentally ill. That's being very depressed. And by the mm -hmm. way, Angie never wanted to commit suicide. Not once, not ever. Mm -hmm. She also had multiple doctors uh, evaluate her. She, they were ready to testify. She had all the papers and the judge said, no, we don't need them. We don't need them. So, um, it essentially was Aaron had gotten Angie's parents involved where she doesn't have a great relationship with her family, um, like at all. And so it was essentially them against her. So he was using like, look, her own family says she's crazy. So it was, it was, uh, just very sloppy to me. Um, and yeah. something that, you and I had discussed that I think is important for the listeners to know, you brought this up, but when a child is in court and they are deciding where the child should live in Tennessee over the age of 12, 
they should really take into consideration what the child prefers and what they want. And I I don't know Grant's exact age. I want to say maybe he was 14 or 15 at one point, maybe 16, where he thought that he had won, quote unquote, and he could go back and live with his mom. And the judge uh, came back after his lunch break and said, nah, you know what? You can handle your dad. You're 6'2". Your dad's, you know, five, whatever. And sent him back, even though he stated he didn't want to live with him. And he was well over the age of 12. So I don't know yeah, that, that is That is really perplexing. Now, obviously, I'm not an attorney and haven't read Tennessee law. But I know um, when I used to practice in Texas years ago, I believe it was 14. And at 14, you know, you could really decide where you wanted to live. I mean, mm-hmm. the judge would look at you and say, okay, who do you want to live with? Now, I'm trying to think if there could have been any wiggle room. In other words, if there was some sense that, let's say, for example, you have one parent who is very lenient, um, lets their child do whatever they want to do. They're 14 mm-hmm. years old. There's a lot of alcohol and drugs in the house, you know, those kinds of things. And the 14-year-old is kind of going, this is a party house. I want to go live there. Right, right. You know? And the other parent is like, no, you know, I'm I'm not your buddy. I'm not your friend. You're not your, your party person or your party buddy or whatever. I mean, I would imagine there could be potential potentially, you know, other circumstances, you know, where a judge might go, okay, I'm going to overrule in this situation because I don't think this is the best interest of the child. But it would be relatively rare for a judge not to say, if you are at kind of an age that the court recognizes you have some authority to say where you want to live, then we're going to give a tremendous amount of weight to that. Well, Dr. Johnson, I think this is where it gets a little tricky because I mean, at this point, the kids were begging and pleading not to go back to live with their father. And they would have their friends come to these court uh, uh, court dates and, and their friends would cheer them on. And, re- you know, it was just, it was crazy. And so just the fact that Tennessee, the the, the judges, and, and they would just continue to side uh, with Aaron Solomon and send the kids back. It was just beyond me. But um, anyway, just to, to wrap things up here, you know, we've, it's been pretty clear to us that it's going to be very difficult to get this case reopened at a local level. So we do believe that it has to be reopened at a federal level. And in your experience and in your opinion, like, what do you think uh, it's going to take for us to reopen this? I mean, oftentimes, and, and, you know, you do a lot of these, a lot of this work, I think, Lauren, I mean, I would think new evidence is going to have to surface and that might, might mean a new witness, comes forward. Uh, It might mean an autopsy is done. I mean, typically that's what I see is, you know, that people are oftentimes very reluctant to reopen a case once a decision has been made. So, you know, what I hear all the time from people is bring me some more evidence, bring me something else, or, you know, this case is done. So that's what I think. I guess the other thing is sometimes, you know, sometimes there's enough media pressure. Yeah, that comes to bear. I've said that. I've totally said that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen that happen where there's just enough media, you know, pressure that comes to bear that, it in some respects, kind of uh, becomes so loud that it can't be ignored any longer, and then Mm -hmm. people kind of take a second look. Absolutely, and I I had said I'm not saying that's right because it's not right. You know, someone should do the right thing just to do the right thing, but. Of course, the media pressure really helps. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Johnston. And where can everybody find you? 
Well, probably the easiest place to find me is my website, which is just drjoanyjohnston.com. And then I write a, a blog for psychology today uh, called The Human Equation. And then last is I do a YouTube channel called Unmasking a Murderer. Okay. So. Wow. That's so interesting. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to be calling you in the future um, <laughs> for other cases for sure. I hope so. That'd be, that'd yeah. be fun. Thank you so much again. You're welcome. Okay, that was Dr. Joni Johnston. And yes, she was 100% objective. She was indifferent. And I, I really appreciated having her voice on this case. I do wish I would have sent her a few more of the Angie files to to look over because, again, I still can't seem to get that out of my head. Everything that she dealt with and and what she went through for so long and just how I can't believe I haven't said it out loud before, but just how it doesn't make sense. Like, oh, you're crazy. You're suicidal, but please, you need to still pay for your kids, but you can't see them um, because you're too crazy. But no, you can fill prescriptions. <laughs> yeah, just just totally insane to me. And it just reminds me uh, what a freaking rock star that Angie was and still is that, you know, she's still on two feet and she's still fighting. So anyway, um, thank you all so much for listening. And oh my gosh, you heard Dr. Johnston. I mean, media, that would really, really help our case get reopened. I mean, besides the fact that we're trying to find new evidence every chance we can, media, media, media. But okay. Anyway, thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Corruption, What Happened to Grant Solomon? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.